side, let's pray, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning and, and together be reminded of the, of the significance of the coming of your son. And thank you for the children being able to sing. Um, this is a, a season of the year, Advent season, Lord, where we begin to, to really focus and to think about you sending Jesus. And as we do that this morning, would you speak to us? God, do not let us go through this Advent time without hearing from you multiple times about things you want to do in us, things you want to do through us. We pray for those people who will be joining us at Christmas Eve who might not ever uh, darken the door of a church at other times of the year, but we pray that your gospel would go forth with clarity, with power, with a winsomeness that would encourage people to put their faith in your son, Jesus. Thank you for meeting, meeting us here this morning, Lord, and, and guide our time. We ask now, again, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about uh, going home for Christmas. That's been our theme this Advent, and it's a weird thing. That phrase, that idea of going home for Christmas can evoke so much longing within us, I think for many of us, that it can also uh, evoke a lot of pain, even fear in some cases. Because often there will be somebody sitting around the table at the holidays who's a difficult person for us to relate to, right? As the relatives come into town or as we travel there and what have you. Uh, somebody uh, who's just a hard relationship. Maybe they're kind of scratchy, kind of just difficult to get along with. And that's what this message is about. How do we prepare for that to, to deal with people who are uh, maybe difficult for us to deal with? All of us need to be able to love difficult people. Would you agree with that? statement, all of us need to be able to love difficult people. The holidays provide us with lots of opportunities to practice that. So here's who this message is not for, okay? Not for. It's not for you if when you go home, you have no difficult people in your life. Uh, if everybody around your table this holiday season is a person of enormous emotional intelligence and relational maturity, this message is not for you. Uh, if there's nobody around the table who is hard for you to track with, maybe because of issues you've pro processed in the past, if there won't be any kind of uh, difficulty or conflict uh, due to the people who are there, if nobody gets sarcastic, if nobody has subliminally uh, barbed messages that they're sending, if nobody talks too much or drinks too much or smokes too much or brags too much or is too opinionated, if there have never been any relational difficulties in your family, no divorces, no fallouts and what have you, if the kids have always felt only encouraged by the parents, never any pressure, never treated unfairly, if the parents have always felt nothing but joy around the decisions that they've observed their children making, if in your family there are no addictions, no job challenges or problems, no insults, no crying babies, no difficulty in any way. This message is not for you. Probably this church is not for you. Uh, you might need to just get up and leave if you're sitting there going, yeah, I just don't relate to any of that. Yeah, we're probably not the church for you because we're not perfect. Nobody here is perfect. Uh, not going to be perfect until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. That's just the facts. So uh, now for everybody who this message is for, for everybody who does live in the real world, I want to talk about three gifts that we can give to the people around us that will bless them. I mean, really bless them and maybe even help them change, maybe even help them grow. 
Uh, and these three things are a wonderful gift that flow right out of the character of who Jesus is. Uh, but first, before we dive into that, and we will in just a moment, um, I want to talk about the people that Jesus had to deal with, the people who were in and around his world. So many folks have this rather unreal, cleaned up, almost antiseptic view of the manger and the world into which Jesus was born. The problem with that is we can actually start to think, man, if Jesus had to sit at my table, he wouldn't have talked so much about loving everybody, right? So let's think about that. Let's look at the Christmas story through a different lens than we do sometimes. Uh, and let's look at the difficult people around the table that first Christmas, so to speak. And I'm just going to kind of list out some of the different kinds of people who would be around that table. The first category that I've chosen to talk about are just disappointed people, right? Disappointed people. People who felt like life hasn't turned out the way they hoped. These people have a kind of heaviness about them that often infects everybody around them. At the first Christmas, there was a couple, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth was their name. And what we know about them is that they were old. They were old. And they had tried really, really hard throughout their life to serve God, to honor God. And they had tried really, really hard throughout their life to have children, but they never had. They couldn't. And infertility is a painful thing for anybody that's experienced. Some of you here this morning have. And Christmas can make it even more painful uh, as you process that. In the ancient world, add to that the notion that barrenness had a stigma attached to it. Uh, the assumption was that if you're not having kids, it's because somehow you've displeased God. You don't have enough faith maybe, or you're hiding or holding something inside that's a secret. Well, in the ancient world, barrenness too was almost always considered the woman's fault, almost always. And so Zachariah and Elizabeth are this, this disappointed couple. They've been disappointed for decades and they're old now. And they have to live with, what do you do when every day, every year you pray and nothing happens? Nothing happens. What do you do with that? And all the people look at you and they say, well, you know, they seem like a nice couple, but there must be something wrong. Something's not right. What kind of strain would that put between the two of them, Zachariah and Elizabeth? And then one day they find out they are in fact going to have a child in their old age. You would think that would make everything great. That fixes everything. But actually what it does for them is it makes life more complicated because they don't have a normal, whatever that is, normal a child or kid, Right. They have somebody that likes to dress weird and eat weird and is going to go before the Messiah and he's got all these weird rhythms and practices in his life. He's not a normal kid at all. There's all kinds of things he's not supposed to do and is supposed to do and so on and so forth. And in the whole process of them finding out about this thing of having a baby, that too is weird. It's complicated. You remember Zechariah is a priest, right? So he's a great man of faith and like all priests and pastors are. And he's, uh, he's supposed to be a, this guy and he's, he's serving in the temple. This is a very special moment in his life, a great opportunity for him. And while he's doing his service in the temple, this angel comes to speak to him. And says, Zachariah, you and Elizabeth are now finally going to have a child. And Zachariah's response, oddly enough, is not, wow, that's awesome. Thank you, God. This is great news. That's not what he says. In fact, what he says is, how can I be sure of this? Zachariah, you, you are talking to an angel. 
that might be one indicator that, you know, <laughs> this could happen, really, right? Yeah? But no, he says, I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And the point is, he doesn't actually believe the angel. An angel showing up to talk to him is not good enough, apparently, right? And so the angel says to him, well, now, Zechariah, you will be silent. And actually, because of something that's said later on there in the Gospel of Luke, he may have also been dumb. Because there's one point where he has to write out his... So he may have also not been able to speak. We're not sure about that. But we know that he was silent. You will be silent and not able to speak until the day that... Well, wait a minute. It tells you right there he can't speak. <laughs> Look at that. Boy, Scripture's helpful. Anyway... <laughs> Until the day this happens, because you, Zechariah, the priest, did not believe my words. Wow. And I just wonder if Elizabeth was ever tempted to say at that point, you know, Zechariah, all these years, we just thought this was my fault. But here you are, the priest who can't believe the angel. So maybe the one whose fault it has been all these years is you, Zechariah. Maybe it's been you. And so we have Zachariah and Elizabeth. And even, you know, in this whole unfolding of the Christmas tale, the Christmas story, the birth of the Messiah that's preceded by the birth of John the Baptist, their son, even here's this couple who comes to the table with decades of disappointing years and what felt like unanswered prayer. And then when the prayer seemingly gets answered, it brings lots of complications. It's not simple. And then secondly, on that first Christmas, there were stressed people. Odds are pretty good that around your holiday table, there's going to be some stressed people. Maybe it's, that's you. I want to tell you about a stressed couple um, that were just stressed literally off the charts. You know, we look at the manger scene and almost always when you look at Mary, you look at Joseph, they look so serene and just so blissful in the paintings and, and things, the art that's produced around this, all is calm, right? All is bright. But you think about what was going on in their lives. You look at some of the details there, uh, which a lot of us never really stop to do, but probably should occasionally. Uh, if you look at the world into which Jesus entered, it was not so serene. Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old when she got engaged to Joseph. That was a typical age for that to happen. And this is what we read in Matthew chapter 1. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And uh, so before they were sexually intimate with each other, Mary is found to be with child and uh, finds out that she's pregnant. And I assume, of course, she would go to Joseph and they would have a conversation. It had to be a very interesting conversation. I'm, we don't know what she said to him, but obviously she had to at least say, you know, Joseph, uh, I've talked to an angel and I am now pregnant by the Holy Spirit of God. And Joseph, this is a special baby. It's the son of God. And we're going to raise him together. His name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And apparently Joseph does not believe her because he is going to divorce her quietly. That's what he's going to do. Can you imagine the conversations? What's going on between them? Some pretty difficult conversations. Really, Mary? This is the story you're going to stick with? You expect me to buy this? I mean, come on, Mary. This is simply unbelievable. And so he says, I'm going to divorce you quietly. 
as opposed to publicly, which would have been the normal thing to do. Call Mary out, point out she's an adulteress, point out that she's been unfaithful to the vows, to the pledge that she made to you when she was betrothed to you. Uh, point this out in public, have her condemned publicly. I'm absolved, you see, of this betrothal that I had with Mary. That would have been normally what Joseph would have done. But then Joseph gets visited by an angel. It gets more complicated. And uh, he has to go back to Mary. This had to also be an interesting conversation. You know, I'm having second thoughts about this divorce thing. I think we should go ahead and get married. How do you think Mary responds to that? That had to be an interesting conversation. Oh, so now, you know, now you want to get married. I know in my marriage, if I believe a stranger, even an angel, when I didn't believe my wife, that doesn't necessarily go over real well, (laughs) right? See, in addition to that, we're told that Mary and Joseph are from an area called Galilee. And in ancient Israel, Galilee was kind of a rural area. There were a few average, medium-sized cities, but not many. It was mostly a, a rural area. Well, what's indicative of a rural area. A lot of times the morality, the sexual code, if you will, is stricter in a rural area than it is in an urban area. Things like sexual behavior and things like that. I, you know, it's, it's, it's not Jerusalem. (laughs) It's not other big cities, Caesarea, Philippi, and so. I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana and in Indiana, we had stricter standards around sexuality and nudity and things of that nature than say you would have had in New York or in California. I remember there was a musical that had become very popular and it was traveling the country at that time. It was called Hair. Anybody? This will date you a little bit, yeah. And there was this nude scene in it. And so I told my mom in high school, I'm like, I wanna go see this, mom. I mean, you know, artistic and all that. And, and. <laughs> And, but there was a big controversy about this coming to Indianapolis. It was in the papers and stuff and on the news. Were they going to let these people expose themselves? You know, and the, the threat was, you do that, you go to jail. You know, we don't do that here in Indianapolis was the, you know, was the message. And uh, so Galilee's a little bit like that in terms of the morality of a rural area compared to an urban area. And this is where Joseph and Mary had to process the details of what's going on in their life could not have been easy. Now, Joseph and Mary are going to have this baby. And so uh, they find out they're going to have to travel to Bethlehem. It's tax time. Rome is taxing everybody. So now there's additional financial stress. At this particular time in Joseph's and Mary's life, they were poor. They were very, very poor. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because when they went to the temple with the baby Jesus to dedicate him to the Lord, uh, the offering that they brought was two doves for the sacrifice. And that's the offering that poor people would bring when they couldn't afford a lamb or something of that nature. They brought the the poorest offering that you could offer that would be acceptable at the temple. So now they're under more financial pressure. And then Joseph makes Mary go with him to Bethlehem. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Uh, It's not clear why he did this. It's not clear why Mary traveled to Bethlehem with him. Now, we know there was some prophecy around this. So God had a purpose in it, right? But what were the human dynamics in this? Why doesn't Mary just stay home with her family? She's about to have a baby. At least there would be help there. There'd be people around her to offer support. And so this journey could not have been difficult, especially on a donkey for crying out loud. You know, all kinds of weather, difficult roads had not, uh, could not possibly have been a good journey. Why did Mary do this? Did none of the family want to help her? Uh, did they not want to associate with somebody who had tarnished the family name? We, we don't really know 
the human answers to these questions. But Mary goes with Joseph and they get to Bethlehem. And some of you know the story. When they get to Bethlehem, uh, the reservations that Joseph had made, oops, he hadn't made any. Yeah, no place to stay. Again, I imagine that created an interesting conversation. Really, Joseph? Really, you bring me to Bethlehem? You ride, I'm riding on a donkey for crying out loud and you make me come on this trip and you've made no plans for a place for us to stay? I'm gonna have a baby, Right? Very disappointing. And then it gets worse. There's another character in the Christmas story, that first Christmas. This is not a safe person by any stretch of the imagination. And this is the third category, unsafe people. We talk about this occasionally. Uh, We, of course, all of us want to be around safe people. We don't want to be around people that we perceive to be unsafe. Whoever your most unsafe person is at Christmas time, I doubt they're less safe than Herod the Great. And by the way, if you have any family members with nicknames that end in the great, they have ego issues going on in the family. Herod decides he doesn't want there to be another king in this part of the world. He wants to be the only king. And so he decides to kill every infant under uh, the age of two in the vicinity there of Bethlehem. And of course, that's where Mary and Joseph have gone. No stress there. Imagine living in that scene. Uh, Here's what happens. Matthew chapter two, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And think about this. This is really happening to real people, real circumstances. And the angel says, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Wow. Wow. Now they not only have everything else going on, scandal, people who do not buy, do not understand their story. Um, They have financial pressures. They have this new baby that they're caring for. They uh, haven't even consummated the marriage yet. All of this stress and pressure in the relationship. And now Herod the king is actually trying to kill their baby boy. And so they're going to have to leave. And not just leave their house, not just leave their tribe, not just leave their family. They're going to have to leave their country. They're going to have to leave their language. They're going to have to leave their culture and go to Egypt, which, by the way, of course, is where the Israelites escaped from slavery, right? And it's no more hospitable to Israelites now than it was back then. What would their lives be like? How's Joseph going to provide for them? Some of you will know there's something called a stress index test. You heard of this? A stress test. It was created about 50 years ago by a couple of psychologists, Holmes and Ray. And there's a guy named David Slagle who calculated how much stress Mary and Joseph uh, would have registered using this stress index test. And it assigns points to stressful experiences in your life. And if you get like up to 300, well, you've hit the high water mark. In fact, you're 80% likely to have some kind of physical uh, major health breakdown when you get up and over that 300 point. Uh, So Slagle went through the the Holmes-Ray stress index for Mary and Joseph, kind of trying to figure out where they would be on this. Uh, And so they'd ask questions like, you know, recently married? Oh, yeah, check. Got that one. Uh, Loss of job? Yep, because Joseph's leaving, you know, Nazareth. Now they're going down to Bethlehem. Job loss. Pregnancy? Check. That one's on there, too. Major financial change? Oh, yeah. Loss of income. In-law troubles? Oh, I'm sure they had in-law troubles, right? Move? Yep. Going to Egypt. Uh, Gain a new family member? That's on there. Yep. Obviously, check. Major business adjustment? Oh, sure. What is he going to do in Egypt? He doesn't know. Outstanding achievement? Well, let's see. Gave birth to the Son of God? That would be checked, right? Major holiday? Yeah. 
God, they invented the holiday for crying out loud. Check. And then targeted for death by an egomaniacal despot. That's not even on the checklist, but that one would put you right off the chart there. This is so far off the charts. Slagle figured that they were at more than 450 points on the stress index and counting. Wow. This idea that you look at the manger scene and Mary and Joseph are just sitting there, silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. I don't think so. Don't think so. They are processing all different kinds of stress and pressure and difficulties and challenges. And we haven't even gotten through all the characters who show up yet. There's another character. This is the fourth category. Just different people. You know, people different than you. Values are different. Personalities are different. The cultures are different. There are these characters called magi. They were different than the Israelites, you understand. We don't know a lot about them. We know they came from the east, uh, probably from Persia, uh, maybe Babylon, that area. We know they were not Israelites. We know that normally they don't worship uh, the God of the Israelites. They were involved in astrology and stargazing. In fact, as you know, they were following a star. But did you know astrology is forbidden in the laws of Israel? the practice of astrology and divination from the stars. These people are different. These people are weird. They're not Jewish. They're not Israelites. Very interesting because uh, sometimes we think that we're the only people who have ever lived where there is all this violence and tension and cultural clashes and stuff like that. Nah, nothing new. It was going on back then. The world has always struggled to get along with people who are different. It's always struggle. And so, you know, our world and even theirs back then cries out for peace. It almost feels like in vain because where do you see peace? Where do you find peace? Peace is hard to find. And there are going to be, you know, any time there are people who are different than you around, peace is something that's difficult to grasp, difficult to find, difficult to achieve. There's another group of people that were there at the, that first Christmas, embarrassing people. And just an FYI, this might be you and your family gathers and you may not know it, but this might be you. Uh, in the Christmas story, there are these shepherds and we, we talked about this last week, so we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but you know, um, shepherding was considered a despicable, a despised trade. People looked down on them. Nobody wanted shepherds around. They were considered to be untrustworthy people. They couldn't bear witness in a court of law, we saw so if the shepherds were there in the stable, after the shepherds leave, Mary is saying to Joseph, did you check the baby? Do you still have your wallet? Is the donkey still tied up? I mean, that's kind of the predisposition of people with regards to shepherds. Another category of people around, untactful people. Untactful people. The odds are good there will be somebody this Christmas who just kind of blurts stuff out around your table. Makes everybody feel awkward and uncomfortable. And every table, every family has somebody like this. Um, there's a little story from the birth of Jesus. There's a guy by the name of Simeon. You've heard of him? He's an old guy. And a lot of times these are old guys or gals who do this, the untactful ones. You know, they're old. They don't care. They're going to say what's on their mind, you know, and they blurt it out and you, deal, you just got to deal with it. You know, they're old people stuff. 
Well, when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to the temple, Simeon, this old guy, says to Mary, now you gotta be, Mary's maybe 13, 14, 15, right in there, right? Young girl, she's trying to put all this together, this stuff that's been happening to her, processing it. She's got a baby now and they're taking him to the temple for dedication and, and Simeon comes over to her and gives her this prophecy. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Have a nice day, Mary. Good luck with that kid. <laughs> She's got to carry that around with her now and figure that out. And we're told that she does ponder these things. What that means is She's a little bit confused by them. She stores up this information. She knows this child is really somebody special. This is God's son that she's had. But wow, what does that mean? What does that mean? Here's another category of people that show up in that first Christmas. Crazy people. <laughs> Everybody has someone in the family who everyone else thinks they're nuts. They're, they're, they don't have all their marbles there. They're, they're, they're out of their mind. And in Jesus' family, there was this one character who folks in the family thought was nuts. Might surprise you. This is, of course, after Jesus is an adult and so on. He's begun his public ministry. <clears throat> Think about this. This comes from Mark 3, real people, real situations. This is what we read. Then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, because you see the routines that Jesus is keeping with his family are so crazy. Sometimes they don't even eat. Sometimes they lose sleep because of the ministry that they're doing. And it says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Do you understand what's going on here? Jesus, you're nuts. You need somebody to take custody of you, so we are going to come do that. Now, here's the ultimate irony. The only one in the room who's not nuts is Jesus, but all the nutty people don't know that he's not nuts, and they, you see how crazy that is. Sometimes that's the dynamic around our table. Everybody, everybody is sure that that person is nuts but maybe it's you all who are nuts. You see, I mean, it's just a thought, but anyway. So what's Jesus do with this? Well, look at this. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. An amazing response here. Well, who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He builds community out of what a, is a very disruptive, dysfunctional moment. He builds community out of it. I wonder how Mary felt if she heard what Jesus said there. I wonder how Mary felt. In fact, I wonder how Jesus is feeling. His whole family, brothers, sisters, mother, they all think he's nuts when he's actually just on a mission, a mission that God has given him. <laughs> Friends, this idea that life for Jesus must have been easier, you know, less broken, less sick, less disappointments, fewer disappointments, fewer crazies in the family, not true. Not true for Jesus at all. Jesus lived in the real world, dealt with real difficult people. And here's the amazing thing. He loved them. That's amazing. In fact, he gave them three gifts. And these are the same three gifts that we need to give the difficult people in our lives who are around us. 
These gifts are rooted in the very character, the very heart of Jesus. And John talks about the first two of these three gifts in his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's talking about Jesus coming to earth. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. There they are. The first two gifts flow right out of the character of Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. This Christmas, we have got to practice giving grace to the people around us. That's part of the reason um, that, that, you know, when families gather, that, that's part of what God is always up to, show people grace. Jesus did this all the time. You know the story about the woman who was brought to Jesus because he's a popular rabbi and the Pharisees are out there scouting. They're looking for the woman they can find who commits adultery. And who knows how long they had followed her, how long they had scoped this out. They knew when she was going to go be with this, this man, perhaps, that she loved. And, and, they, and they barge in on her, and they bust in, and they, ha, ha, you're caught. And then they take her and they drag her off to publicly humiliate her, to publicly judge her. They take her to Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, guys. You go ahead, whoever of you is without sin, you be the first one to throw a stone. And they stand there for a little bit. There's some tension. And then eventually one after the other throws down their stone and walks away. And then Jesus asks the woman, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared and the apostle John, who was very, very close to Jesus, he's the disciple who Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself uh, on several occasions. And uh, the apostle John writes these words. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you think that that woman who was there at that moment sensed the salvation that Jesus offered? Or did she feel condemned? She, I, I do not condemn you. He says, incredible, absolutely incredible. Jesus is just full of grace and we need to be full of grace as well as we relate to each other, as we relate to family, as we relate to friends. When I give the gift of grace to someone, I'm saying to them, I don't judge you. I don't judge you. And you may look at somebody and, tr and truthfully you think, well, you know what? They don't deserve that. Well, of course they don't. None of us deserve grace. In fact, only God knows what any of us deserve, right? Sometimes I think I know what you deserve. You may think you know sometimes what I deserve. But the truth is, I don't know your background. And I don't know your hurts. And I don't know your wounds along the way. And I don't know the scars that you carry. And I don't know what you grew up having to process and deal with. I don't know your DNA. And so really, I'm in no position, really not ever, to judge you, to condemn you. Only God knows what you or I deserve. And when I give grace, I'm actually recognizing that. I'm not your judge. And I'm saying, you know, I, I don't know your whole story, but I want to love you. I want to be for you. I want to accept you. And that is grace, my friends. Jesus was full of grace, but not just grace. He was also full of truth. 
And grace without truth won't really help us grow very much. You need grace and you need truth. But the truth can be really hard to give and, and to, to receive. To give truth to somebody can be really hard to do. To receive it from somebody can be really, really hard to do. A lot of times somebody needs to hear the truth. And yet in that moment, uh, I don't know how to say it. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Years ago, I was uh, at a restaurant. It was a buffet line in, in one of those kind of feeding troughs where you could put as much food on your plate as you wanted. And uh, so we're, I'm, I'm waiting in line. And, and a hostess uh, kind of moves along. And she's got two very elderly, not very mobile ladies that she's bringing to the front of the line. And um, they... There's a couple of young guys who are actually behind me, and they're not too happy about this. I don't know if they were in a hurry, don't really know what their circumstances were, but they wanted everybody to know they weren't happy about what was happening. So they said in a voice loud enough that everybody you know, in that area, in that section where we were, could hear, man, I can't believe they're doing this, they said. I guess that's what happens when you get old. I guess when you get old, rules don't apply to you anymore. I guess when you're drooling, you get to go to the front of the line. And we're all kind of hearing this, wow. And we're all thinking, somebody should say something. That's just incredibly rude. But before I could think of anything to say, there was a young girl, maybe 10, maybe 11, something like that. And she just kind of looked back at these guys, stepped out on the line, looked back at them, went, <laughs> just blew them a raspberry right there. Sometimes truth doesn't even need words, right? <laughs> it was actually a moment of prophetic inspiration, divinely inspired. And what I find so often is I'm great at telling people truth in my imagination. I'll have uh, imaginary conversations with somebody that I think I need to help understand the truth. And I'm unbelievably fluent. I'm articulate. And they hear what I have to say. And they're so responsive. And they're so repentant. Wow, thanks for sharing that. I needed to hear that. You're exactly right. All in my imagination. But when it means looking somebody in the eye, having that face-to-face -face conversation, man, I feel awkward. I don't know what to say. I stumble to find the right words. Sometimes I just don't do it. I just bail out unless I'm angry. And if I'm angry, what I do is I just put the dump truck in reverse and back it up and pull the lever and let them have it. The whole load right now. There you go. How's that feel? And you know what? I think I can safely say, accurately say, that always does more damage than good. Always. You know, the Apostle Paul, interesting guy, the Apostle Paul, you remember, is the guy who gave permission to kill somebody one time who followed Jesus. The Apostle Paul is the guy who was on a mission headed to Damascus. He was going to persecute Christians there, right? I mean, he's got a reputation. This guy is a stud persecutor of Christians, right? And then he's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He becomes a, a Jesus follower, and he gets to know Jesus, and he experiences the love, the grace, the mercy, the truth of Jesus in his own life. And that prompts him to write these words later on. He says, you know, instead of, instead of backing the dump truck up, instead of just giving people tonnage of truth, right? He said, instead of doing that, we've got to learn to speak the truth in love. All the difference in the world. And he says, if we do that, we will in all things grow up into him, into Jesus, into Christ, who is the head. Because that's the goal, 
The goal isn't getting something off your chest, letting that person know what kind of a jerk they are. Glad I used that word. Uh, That's not the goal. The goal is to grow up into Jesus, you see. Become like him. But we can't do that without grace and truth being spoken in love. Anything else is damaging. And so this year, give the gift of grace to people. Give the gift of truth spoken in love to people. Be committed to those things. And then lastly, the third gift that we need to give each other is the gift of time or the gift of patience, if you will. I give people grace enough, hopefully to love them well. I give them truth enough so that they can know the truth and kind of look in a mirror and really see what's going on in their life when, that's, when that is pro- appropriately my role. But then I too need to recognize they're, they're not gonna change overnight. Nobody does, nobody. Not me, not you. Jesus tells this great story one time. It's a little story in Luke 13. This is what he says. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Picture it. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, in other words, the gardener, right? For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Three years. So he says, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Notice what the gardener says, sir. The man replied, "Uh, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then, you know, we'll cut it down. Now, the beautiful thing here in this story that Jesus tells is, of course, Jesus is the gardener. God the Father is the gardener. And he wants to give the fruitless tree one more year. It's already had three, but he wants to give it one more year. The gardener wants to dig around. It wants to fertilize. It wants to do everything imaginable to cause fruitfulness, to see if it can bear fruit. It's a picture of patience. What it is, is a picture of how God works in your life and in mine. That's what it's a picture of. And we too have to learn to be patient, patient like Jesus. Uh, We've got to learn to give the gift of time to one another. There will be somebody in your life this Christmas who needs grace. And I'll tell you what, they don't deserve it. But that's the best gift you could possibly give them. It would show them the heart and the love of Jesus if they saw that coming from you. Or maybe they need truth spoken in love. But if you do that, you gotta be so careful, so prayerful, so humble, so loving if you're gonna dish up some truth. You gotta think very carefully how to say, you gotta pray all around that. Or maybe they just need time. (laughs) Don't give up on them. Remember, you're not in charge of them. God is at work in them, just like he's at work in you patiently. So grace, truth, time. And let's be real clear too. You're not a grace, truth, time generator or factory. Uh, You're just a conduit of those things. You know, when you're receiving those things and know that you are, you're receiving them from Jesus, then you can become a good conduit of those things to others. There's this wonderful verse in Isaiah. God is talking to Israel and they're having a a pretty difficult time because they're actually going through some discipline. Uh, Many people are going off into exile. So there's not much peace in their life. Uh, There's a lot of stress going on and they're not very sure at all where they stand with God. Does he love us? Does he hate us? And God wants them to know. 
that they are loved because they can't really give love to others very well if they don't know that they themselves are loved. And so God says to them in Isaiah 49, he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Uh, my, uh, my, grandmother, my, my daughter Morgan just had a baby just like two days ago. And uh, it's a little girl and the baby's name is uh, Lennon. Uh, Lennon Stalin Trotsky Elizabeth Douglas, I think is her name. Uh, it's actually Lennon Elizabeth Douglas. Um, some people thought I was serious in the first service when I said that. Like, anyway, no, it's Lennon, spelled L-E-N-N-O-N. But we were, we were over at the hospital uh, getting to visit Lennon and, and Morgan and Cal. And, uh, and Morgan remarked of the fact baby, which was just inside her, that the moment this baby is born and you're holding it, it's like some massive giant, can you, can you picture a switch? I mean, a huge giant switch, one so big, you know, you kind of just, you know, you throw the switch and the power, and that's what happens to parents. There's this baby in the womb. You don't even really know the baby. It bothers you. It keeps you awake at night. It kicks you. It does all kinds of things. You might even have some anxious thoughts about the baby, its health, her, his or her health, what have you. And then the baby's suddenly born. And it's like, wow, the switch is thrown. You just love this child. You would die for this child. And it happens in practically an instant. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so you begin feeding that child. Would you not feed it? And the point that is here in, in Isaiah is that no, under any ordinary circumstance, no mother would not feed their child. Although in this decadent world that we live in, sometimes that does happen. And, that, and that's why it says here, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? The normal answer will be no. But then it says, though she may forget. In other words, though that kind of garbage does happen in the fallen world, God says, I will not forget you. That is not gonna happen. Not ever. No way, no how. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's a powerful picture. You see, that's what Jesus was doing here on earth. He was born in a manger. He lived with disappointed, stressed, very unsafe, different, crazy, uh, embarrassing people. And he gave them grace and truth and time. He went to the cross. And on the cross, he stretched out his hands. And they took these big, big, cruel spikes. And they engraved your name and my name on the palm of his hands. That's what was going on there. It's remarkable love. It's remarkable grace. It's remarkable truth. The truth part of that is Jesus wasn't, you know, blinking or, or uh, turning a blind eye to our sin. No, he embraced it fully, totally. He took it on himself. And he loves us like a mother loves her nursing baby. And so, you know, we come to him at this season and we ask him, God, would you, would you be the giver and make me the conduit of grace and truth and time, patience to the people around me? And, you know, I just, I just desire so very much for you to have a great Christmas this year and I pray that you will give people around you the gifts of grace and truth 
and time and patience so that they may see Jesus in you. Because when we're showing grace, when we're willing to speak difficult truth but to do it in love, when we show patience to each other, boy, we start to look like and taste like and smell like Jesus. And that is what we need, all of us. We need Jesus. Pray with me. Maybe you've got a relationship that you're thinking about uh, as it's going to uh, happen uh, in this holiday season, and it's kind of a bumpy, scratchy, difficult, awkward relationship. You're not quite sure what to do with it. Well, I, I would just suggest you, you take that relationship to God and you, you literally just hand it up to him. And maybe it's a deeply, deeply, deeply broken relationship, so severe, the pain is so raw around it, you, you don't frankly really even know what to do with it. You don't know where to start. I would just say to you, God knows. And you don't have to know. You don't have to figure it out right now. You just need to take it to him. You need to bring your heart to God and say, God, I want this relationship fixed. I want it to be mended. I want reconciliation. Don't even know how to get there. And let go of the bitterness. Let go of resentment. Let go of the hurt that's kind of keeping you in prison or keeping you in an anxious place. Give that to the Lord. And in the stillness of this moment, we just remember that peace does not come from out there, from our surroundings, from our circumstances. It comes from within. So, Father, give us your grace. Give us your peace. Give us your truth. Remind us of your love. Give us the peace that comes really only through relating to you. Bring healing in our relationships and Give us the character, the mind, the heart of Jesus as we relate to one another, as we relate to family, as we relate to friends. All so that we would see Jesus and be drawn to him. For we ask this in his name. Amen.